Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this podcast about? Well, it's about wellness. It's about being a good person. It's about really cool and interesting stories, about things that motivate you. But beyond all that, the most important thing is actually helping others. And I always like to have time to talk about things that people are going through whether it's going to be raising stroke awareness or maybe it's talking about Alzheimer's disease. But you know what? I want to talk about something that affects many, many, many people, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, but we're going to be a little slant today towards women. I want to talk about breast cancer. And, you know, I hooked this up for the podcast today because I went out and got a specialist. So I'm going to do my introduction, read about her. So this is going to be actually one of my good friends. This is going to be Dr. Irene Kang. And you know, I got to say already, she's pretty humble because every time I do one of these podcasts, I tell my guests to send me their bio. I'm like, dude, you need to chill out on the bio. There's like way too many things you're making me read. But hers is like super short, which means she actually cares more about patients than herself. So it's good. So Dr. Irene Kang is a medical oncologist at USC Go Trojans, specializing in breast cancer. Her practice philosophy is to partner with her patients to achieve their best outcomes. Some of her academic work focuses on healthcare disparities, supportive care studies, and early phase clinical trials. And with that being said, let me just introduce the guest of honor, Dr. Irene Kang. Thank you for being here. Hi, Raj. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be on your podcast with your listeners today. Oh, thanks. Did you like your intro? Did, did I pump you up enough? I did. I loved it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like to keep it short and sweet. Nobody likes a long introduction. And <laughs> I definitely think my patients are way more interesting than I am. Well, hey, first part is a little meet and greet because I do got a bunch of med students and uh, people going to the healthcare profession who want to get to know about you. So how about this? Where did you go to college and what was your major? Did you go the, the classic route of the biology or did you mix it up a little bit? So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So my choice for college was UC Berkeley, go Bears, but also fight on everybody. <laughs> uh, and my major, I started off in the College of Engineering, just because, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, everybody's getting into the tech industry. So I wanted to check it out. But somewhere along kind of my freshman year, I decided I wanted to ultimately end up in medicine. So I settled on the major of bioengineering, which kind of married both worlds. I got to take all the bio and OCHEM classes and still do kind of physics, math, and some engineering. Of course, now I don't remember any of it, but it was a great education. All right. I like that. Let's kind of jump in the, the time machine and fast forward a little bit. So now you're in med school and be honest with me because I have a lie detector. Uh, what was your favorite subject or rotation and what was your worst? Which one do you just, ugh, it gives you those chills when you think about it. 
Oh, medical school, I actually have really fond memories of, maybe because of the people you meet and also just you're learning about what's going to be your life's work after that. Um, I think the most memorable is anatomy lab. We did it where it was, I, I want to say five or six of it. Let me count one, two, three, four, five, six, six of us um, working on a team together and, you know, nobody, for the most part, no one has really had that experience. And so to go through that with five of your classmates, you really bond. And we had kind of come together from all walks of life. And so that sticks with me a lot. Otherwise, I, I remember neuroanatomy just scaring me a lot because it's just notoriously difficult. But I found that being in school with other classmates you, you learn from one another. And I think my classmates made me a better student and helped me learn a lot of the tough subject material. You know, my wife, I just, I just did a podcast with her the other day. She talked about arthritis and uh, I asked her the same question and she said anatomy too, but she said that when she thinks about it, this smell of formaldehyde just kind of lingers in the back of her mind. Is that, is that true for you too? Are you? For sure. You never forget that smell. All right. So, you know, so there's med school. And now before where you are now, there's a couple steps. So you do med school, you could be a surgeon, you could be taking care of little kids, you could be delivering babies. Why internal medicine? How did that happen? Um, I definitely thought about all of those other specialties, particularly surgery, because surgery saved my life when I was in a car accident. But I ended up in internal medicine probably for a couple of reasons. My, my father is an internist in internal medicine and clearly loves what he does. Um, you know, my mom is begging him to retire and he just won't let go. Um, oh, he's practicing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he'll tell me about cases and I am just really always excited. And also I respect kind of the diagnostic thinking and how, how people kind of uncover problems and, and get to treatment and really help people. So that's probably a big part of why I was drawn to internal medicine. I actually fell in love with oncology around kind of at the same time. And so partly I went into medicine because I knew I wanted to go into oncology um, on my surgery rotations, which were done at the general hospital in San Francisco, most memorable patient. It was a woman who didn't speak English and had probably known about her breast cancer for a long time. It's uh, something we call a fungating mass in, in medicine. And so that's a cancer that you can't really not know it's there. It's uh, something that's growing in your breast. And um, for her, it was quite large and actually really smelly. But really what got to me was how humble she was and how grateful she was for her care, but also how scared she was probably somebody who assumed that uh, she couldn't get health care and so probably didn't seek care for a long time. And so when we were finally able to care for her and get her surgery, she was incredibly grateful. And I'm, I was just so touched by the strength that she had to kind of muster up for herself to get through this. And after that, I was like, gosh, these cancer patients go through a lot. And, you know, how can I be there for them? And how can we as a medical institution do better for them. And so after that, it was whether it was pediatrics or internal medicine, every time I saw a cancer patient, I just uh, really gravitated toward them. Yeah, I got to tell you, you're like a really good person. But 
I'm going to go back to another question I already asked because, you know, I got a little Asian in me. I'm half Indian, half Filipino. I didn't know your dad was a doctor. So do you want to take back your answer of why you went to med school? Was there a little pressure, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like the Asian thing. Like you may get beat with bamboo if you don't. <laughs> I'll let you take back that answer. Was there any pressure in your family to go to the doctor route? My dad clearly loves his job and so definitely wanted me to consider that as a career path. But what he also didn't want was for me to choose it because of him and maybe regret that choice in the end. So he definitely encouraged me to consider it, but also look at other options. And for me personally, I think during college was a time when I was trying to, you know, quote unquote, find myself. And so I tried and I looked into at least, I mean, I may not have gone very far down the rabbit hole, but I looked into other career options, like talking to my friends in the business school and what their career paths were going to look like and and engineering. I mean, props to engineers. It was so hard to learn computer science. And I definitely think it's probably too smart for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, let me read something. Then we're going to talk about breast cancer. So I did some research because I want to make sure I do my, my due diligence. So I read this and you could say if it's wrong or right. So globally, breast cancer is the second most frequently diagnosed malignancy just behind lung cancer. I'm a lung doctor. Accounting for over 2 million cases each year. It is also the leading cause of cancer death in women worldwide. In the United States, breast cancer is the most common female cancer and the second most common cancer death in women. That's scary. Is that is that right? That's absolutely true. And if I can add a few more yeah. statistics in there, yeah. in the United States, a woman's chance of developing invasive breast cancer during their lifetime is one in eight. That's oh my God. incredible. And so, you know, it's impossible for anyone not to be touched by breast cancer somewhere in their social circle. In addition, the estimate is 3.8 million people are living in the United States as breast cancer survivors today. So, hey, I got some questions. And, you know, a lot of these questions I told my med students and following that you're going to be coming on the show. So they sent a lot of questions. So let's Great. Go breast let's cancer. do it. Pretend you're, pretend you're talking to a patient, okay? Hey, Dr. Kang, what is breast cancer? Sure. So let's start with the basics. Breast cancer refers to a tumor or cancer that developed from cells in the breast. And if I worry about it or I think I have it, is there a test for breast cancer in itself? I think in most things in medicine, no test is perfect, but the best test we have for someone without symptoms, so screening someone for breast cancer would be what's called a mammogram. And then there are other tests that can be done if someone, let's say, feels a lump in their breast and is worried that it's a cancer. I think a big part of when we talk about breast cancer, once assuming you make the diagnosis, many patients hear the word staging. And how do you explain to them what is breast cancer staging just in really simple terms after they make a diagnosis? Staging is an attempt for us to have a common language about a person's cancer and to understand essentially how advanced a cancer is. So for lung cancer, as you're familiar with Raj, there's a staging system to help you determine how advanced or early stage a cancer is. Similarly for breast cancer, um, we have a very similar staging and the body or the staging system is called TNM, uh, which stands for tumor nodes or lymph nodes and metastasis. So classically an early stage cancer is going to be something that's only we're confined to the breast, hopefully small in size, 
And then as stage increases, you might have something like lymph node involvement. And the final stage, and staging goes from one to three to four. So four is the final stage. The highest stage of breast cancer, most advanced stage, is when there is distant metastasis. And that would be that M part of the TNM staging. You know, I think that this leads to one of the most important questions is, hey, we made them diagnosed, we made it correctly, and I, I need to get treatment. And there are many different parts of treatment. So I want to explain to patients, I mean, what does these parts include? So surgery, is that the mainstay therapy for being cured? And can you explain what is breast conserving surgery and explain what a mastectomy is in regards to uh, therapy and treatment? Yeah, I like how you said that, Raj. Surgery is the mainstay for curative intent treatment. So an early stage breast cancer, we want to get to surgery so that all of their cancer, at least anything that's visible in the body can be removed. So um, generally surgery would be taking out the primary breast cancer and then any lymph node involvement. Sometimes you don't know ahead of time from surgery whether lymph nodes are involved or not. So oftentimes there's a procedure where several lymph nodes need to be sampled called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And at least a few lymph nodes need to be taken out just to make sure that that cancer hasn't already spread to lymph nodes. So mastectomy is the surgery where simply the entire breast tissue is removed. And conversely, then there's breast conserving surgery, which can also be referred to as a lumpectomy or a partial mastectomy. And this is where only the area where the cancer is involved is removed and allows for most of the breast tissue to still be conserved. This is generally preferred for patients primarily to allow them to still keep their breasts, which in most cultures and by most people are, are viewed as a large part of their personal and sexual identity. There's a lot of reconstructive options that are available to breast cancer patients to allow them to maintain kind of a desirable cosmesis. And so even mastectomy where the entire breast is being removed um, there may still be good kind of cosmetic and reconstructive options for patients. So it, unfortunately, if you're in the situation where you're considering surgery, definitely ask about all your options. So and here's something that confused me a little bit. So when we're talking about surgical options, I think you said appropriately that you just don't know if certain lymph nodes are involved until you actually go in there. So preoperatively, when we discuss with the patients, hey, what we want to do there is no promises, right? Because things change. And even if you want to do a breast conserving surgery, like a lumpectomy, do things happen sometimes that maybe you may have not seen in imaging? You're like, hey, I need to change the ship and maybe do something where it's a uh, mastectomy. Is that common? Or can our pre-surgical evaluation really give you a good guess of what's going to happen when you go to surgery? I think in most cases, the pre-surgical evaluation can give you a good plan for surgery and what to expect during and after surgery. Um, primarily, that's based on imaging. So mammograms, oftentimes MRI or ultrasounds can help give your surgeon a good idea of where the cancer is and where it isn't. And so where they need to cut and where they can leave alone. <laughs> However, you're absolutely right, Raj, that Imaging is not perfect and not foolproof. There are certain types of cancers that really evade imaging 
quite well. For example, lobular cancers, where they this cancer arises from the lobules instead of the ducts in the breast. And because the lobules are linear, the cancer tends to form in these linear lines of cells and doesn't really form a mass. So you may not necessarily see the full extent of the tumor on mammogram imaging. So in the best case scenario, yes, your, you know, your surgical evaluation, your pre-surgical evaluation gives you a good idea of how much breast tissue will need to be taken, but correct. There's no promises. Sometimes there are surprises with many more lymph nodes involved or a tumor that was much larger than initially expected. Nice answer. So next question, as far as therapy is concerned, radiation. Now is radiation kind of like an add-on based upon the stage or does everyone get some radiation just to make sure you knocked off every cell? What is the role of that? Great. So I think one of the things we'll start to weave into this conversation is that cancer treatment has to be personalized. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that means both disease specific factors. So say for example, Um, A patient had a relatively small tumor that was treated with mastectomy. So there's no more breast tissue left. There was no involvement in the lymph nodes and their tumor was small. That's a cancer that we would not treat with radiation. But on the flip side, I think the easiest example is when there's a cancer that's treated with breast conserving surgery. So the conserved breast, the breast tissue that we left, you know, with the patient is at increased risk for developing another cancer, having that cancer recur. So to protect that conserved breast tissue, radiation is almost always recommended. And we consider radiation a local regional therapy. We consider radiation as kind of protecting generally the breast and the lymph node fields against cancer recurrence. Now, the next question is about chemo. Now, when I used to think about chemotherapy, I thought this is going to be something that we use in higher stages of cancers, unfortunately, because it is chemo, a lot of side effects, you know, is that the same mentality when I think of breast cancers as I do with lung cancers? Am I wrong about that? Or You're absolutely right. We're talking about reducing risk of recurrence in early stage disease. So chemotherapy is a toxic treatment and we want to use it judiciously, we want to use it in in the right patient. So generally, chemotherapy is a systemic treatment. So it's a medication that's going to hit kind of every cell in your body because it's going through your bloodstream. And therefore, it will protect hopefully the whole body against breast cancer recurrence. Um, So as opposed to the local treatments that number one, get rid of your cancer with surgery and then prevent local recurrence with radiation. Chemotherapy prevents both the local breast cancer recurrence as well as a distant recurrence. So the breast cancer coming back in the bones or the liver or the lungs. That being said, you know, it's kind of, I consider it big guns. And and so an early stage breast cancer, especially kind of the, the classic example is a hormonally driven breast cancer, a hormone receptor positive breast cancer, where we can also effectively reduce the risk of breast cancer with hormone therapies, may not really benefit from chemotherapy. And luckily, we have molecular risk scores that can help us determine really who benefits from chemotherapy or not. And also just through past clinical trials, through past patients who volunteered to help really understand the science better, 
We understand what drugs work best for breast cancer. We understand kind of which types of breast cancer respond best to chemotherapy. And so, again, this is a very personalized decision. Now, I'm going to make it harder for you because the next three uh, treatment questions are tough. So you mentioned hormone therapy already. So is hormonal therapy used in any stage of breast cancer, though personalized? And can you explain what hormones are you referring to? Most breast cancers, I would say the majority of breast cancers, and by that I mean about 60 to 70%, are driven by hormones. We look at breast cancers and assess them for what we call predictive biomarkers. And so a breast cancer can express the estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor. And then there's a third receptor called HER2, which I'll get to. But the estrogen and progesterone receptors are proteins that sit on top of the cell surface, the cancer cell surface, and are avid for estrogen and progesterone. And so estrogen in a patient's body or person's body will bind this receptor and signal growth to the cancer cell. So the cancer cell is smart and uses this signaling to feed itself. Okay. Um, Like I said, it's the majority of breast cancers, but if your breast cancer does not express estrogen or progesterone receptor, then it's not driven at all by those hormones. Um, When we talk about hormone therapy, we're actually talking about blocking that estrogen and progesterone signaling. So we're talking about blocking hormone receptor signaling. And you can do that either by taking a medication that blocks the receptor or taking a medication that shuts down your body's estrogen production. Um, These medications are extremely effective at reducing risk of breast cancer recurrence, oftentimes just as effective as chemotherapy. And that's where then the decision comes in to, to look at, you know, does chemo really add anything to my cancer care or am I just as well off doing hormone therapy alone? So now you got me really curious. So let's say I had an early stage breast cancer, I have awesome doctors, they did a great surgery. And so there's no more tumor burden in me, but when they did the markers, hey, it was estrogen positive, it was progesterone positive. Would you still give that woman hormonal therapy though the tumor is out? Yeah, so even with a low risk breast cancer, hormone therapy has been shown to benefit and reduce that risk of recurrence. And unlike some of these other treatments, such as chemotherapy, hormone therapy is really much less toxic to the patient. Of course, you know, some patients will still have side effects. And so that is something to manage in conjunction with your um, cancer care team. But by and large, it's seen as relatively safe treatment that has potentially huge benefit. In fact, these same hormone therapies are used to prevent breast cancer in people who've never had breast cancer before, but may be at high risk. The last two get me confused. So what is targeted therapy? And then, of course, my last question is immuno. So what does targeted therapy mean? Oh, I'm excited about both these questions. You're smiling. You can't see if I see you smiling over there. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm excited because these medications are really elegant in a way and capture the imagination of what medicine can do for cancer care. So we'll start with targeted therapy. I mentioned that um, we test breast cancer cells for three proteins, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and then this third protein I called HER2. This is a type of epidermal growth factor receptor. It is present on normal cells as well, but it's the growth signaler. And a cancer can kind of upregulate expression of this 
or overexpress this growth signaling protein and feed itself through that. So HER2 positive or HER2 expressing breast cancers are some of the most aggressive, fast growing cancers. And before we had targeted treatment, they had some of the worst outcomes. But about in the 90s, Genentech developed trastuzumab, a monoclonal antibody that targets the HER2 protein and shuts down its signaling or blocks its signaling. And this really changed the way these cancers respond to treatment. So with a targeted therapy, which often is HER2 targeted when we're talking about breast cancer, um, we're talking about shutting down that signaling with a medication, oftentimes antibody-based medications, although now there are also what we call small molecule inhibitors. And usually you have to give it with chemo, so that's still a bummer, but they've really changed the way we think about treating these cancers and changed the way patients do with these cancers long-term. And their toxicity generally is much better than chemotherapy. They don't make you okay. lose your hair. They don't make you vomit, stuff like that. So one of the worst things that patients want to hear is something called this triple negative breast cancer. I mean, what is triple negative breast cancer? Yeah, that is kind of probably one of the scariest diagnoses in terms of breast cancer that that can happen. And what they're referring to when they say triple negative is those three biomarkers that I just talked about, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. We often call it ER, PR, and HER2. And so if your cancer doesn't need those three receptors for its growth, so it doesn't express any of those receptors, it's kind of growing on its own. We don't exactly know what's driving it, but kind of one of the hallmarks of cancer are driving it or one or more. Yeah. And so classically, the only way we knew how to treat triple negative breast cancer, um, aside from surgery and radiation was good old chemotherapy medications uh-huh. that target right. rapidly dividing cells. How common is that in breast cancer to be triple negative? It's, is it rare, hopefully, or... I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's not common. So triple negative breast cancers are about 15% of all diagnosed breast cancers. Okay. And if you have, or if you are diagnosed with a triple negative breast cancer, your risk of carrying a familial inherited gene is higher. So that's one of the things that oftentimes we'll test for in a newly diagnosed triple negative breast cancer patient. So tell me about immunotherapy. I, I, I need some teaching on that. So I get confused with targeted immuno. So how do you differentiate that? The term immunotherapy generally refers to treatments that are designed to use the body's immune system to fight against your cancer. And how do you do that? I think that's, I, <laughs> I was completely, it just captures the imagination, right? But you realize that your body's immune system is constantly surveilling your body to make sure that bad things like outside pathogens, but also inside bad things like a cancer developing, a tumor developing are checked and controlled by the immune system. Um, So our body's immune system can fight off cancer. There are different kind of immune therapies that have come through the pipeline, but really most recently have been the checkpoint inhibitors. And Uh, I guess recently even are kind of T-cell directed therapies, but really what's available in the clinic right now are the checkpoint inhibitors, which 
have really been prime time and front and center for melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, renal cell cancer, and a whole slew of solid tumors. And breast cancer is probably one of the latest to the game. And part of that is because we have these targeted therapies, we have hormone therapy, we have chemotherapy, but classically breast cancer as a whole is not very what we call immunogenic. It doesn't incite the immune system that much. Triple negative is a different case. So it's, you know, you really can't think of breast cancer as all the same disease. So triple negative breast cancer tends to be more immune responsive. And so several recent clinical studies have shown immune therapy to be effective both in stage four triple negative breast cancer, as well as now early stage triple negative breast cancer. So there is, there is hope if you do have it, which sounds good. Absolutely. Yeah. Just looking for ways to improve outcomes and and push the envelope. Unfortunately, right now, immune therapy is still given with chemotherapy, but it's still resulted in big improvements in disease control and and cure rates. Let's talk about what happens afterwards there. I assume there is a board, a tumor board that meets for each patient to individualize the therapy, come up with the plan. How do patients, um, are they mostly overwhelmed after you kind of give them their roadmap? Are they in tears? Are they very hopeful? How, how do, what usually happens after therapy and how do patients react to it? Everybody is different for sure. And, you know, one thing I love about my job is you see how people really dig deep and connect with family and friends and how everyone just comes around this person and rallies behind them to get them through this awful life happening. But Here at USC Norris, we're lucky to have a multidisciplinary breast clinic where it's really cool where newly diagnosed patients get to see their surgeon, their medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, plastic surgery, genetics, um, really anyone kind of that would need to be involved in, in creating a treatment plan for them all in one day so that they can kind of ask all their questions and feel like they have a treatment plan and kind of a game plan for how we're going to treat their cancer. The other way it works is you have to go see the surgeon, you have to go see the medical oncologist, and you kind of have to piece together your treatment plan over a couple visits. It generally happens, you know, fairly quickly anyways, but you know, when you're hit with a cancer diagnosis, I think the anxiety and the shock all come together. And it's, it's nice to have some resolution to at least a piece of that relatively quickly. So we're happy to provide that service to our patients. Well said. So before we switch to the cancer screening, breast cancer screening, let me ask you a couple one-liners. Uh, who's at high risk for getting breast cancer, uh, Dr. King? So there are risk factors that you can control and risk factors that you can't control. Okay. So risk factors that you're kind of born with are your family history yeah. or whether you carry a gene. Throw them out, throw, throw out those genes. What, what, what are those genes? Just in case you got some med students. Love it. Okay. So BRCA one and two are okay. the kind of poster child genes. These are, yep. this is the gene that let's say drove Angelina Jolie to get double mastectomy and prevent breast cancer. But other genes that you should know about include a gene called PALV2, which behaves very similar to BRCA1 or 2, CHECK2, 
P53, which is the leaf many gene, P10. And so beyond that, it probably, you need to talk to our genetic specialist. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of important cancer-related genes that may need to be tested beyond just the, you know, the main BRCA1 or 2. Probably the first clue to that, though, is family history. Sure. Other than that, you know, being born female, you know, women are really by and far have much higher risk of breast cancer age as you age, your risk of breast cancer increases and how much estrogen you've been exposed to over your life, which generally has to do with just how long you've been menstruating stuff you can control with breast cancer risk primarily. Let's see, thinking about it. What about obesity? I thought that was one of the risk factors. Love it. Yeah. So obesity can (laughs) at least double your risk of breast cancer. Excessive alcohol intake can as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Things we can do to reduce our risk of breast cancer include regular exercise. And this is independent from weight. This Mm -hmm. is just being active, ideally 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Maintaining a healthy weight certainly is there. And can I throw one more out there because I got three kids breastfeeding. Yes. For a woman who breastfeeds, this is protective against breast cancer. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, you know, when when someone gets a diagnosis and they ask you, hey, Dr. Kang, could this breast cancer be prevented? I mean, is the answer in some cases it could have been or what do you say? I think it's hard to say that you could have prevented this cancer when a patient has really actively been diagnosed with the cancer. I I don't know that it's incredibly helpful. I think what we can say is moving forward, we can do our best at, you know, preventing this cancer from ever coming back. And so that might be things like, okay, if you discover a family history or a gene mutation, then you can do a prophylactic mastectomy and really significantly reduce your risk of breast cancer in the future. You know, the reason we offer medications after breast cancer is to reduce the risk of recurrence. With that said, because we were kind of touched a little bit about it, about breast cancer screening. And I think it's a huge thing. That's why I wanted to end on this part. So I got some breast cancer screening. So who should be screened for breast cancer? And I know there's many different guidelines and sometimes they kind of fight with each other, you know? So right now, when you talk to your patients, who should be screened for breast cancer? I keep it simple. Okay. And I go by kind of American Cancer Society or National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. And so do our breast radiologists, which for a female at average age or average risk, Um, So no outside factors like family history or a gene mutation, the age to start screening is 40 years old. And then how frequently should be annual screening mammograms and time should be as long as you're in good health and you have a life expectancy of about 10 years, you should just keep going with the screening in our opinion. So let me ask you this, I mean, being a little devil's advocate. So what are... Well, here's a good question first. What are the benefits of being screened for breast cancer? They're like, sure, I'll do it. It's the guidelines, you know, I'm the age. So, I mean, what are the big benefits and are there any drawbacks in screening breast cancer patients? The benefit is that you can catch cancer early. Well said, okay. That is is the goal because an early, earlier cancer and earlier stage cancer is much more treatable. It's effectively treatable with less invasive 
or less kind of toxic therapy. So Mm -hmm. if we can diagnose it early enough that we don't have to give you chemo, your surgery can be very small. Maybe you can even avoid radiation. These are all wins. Sure. Yeah. But the drawbacks, you know, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say there weren't any breast screening is generally done with mammography. And for some patients that can be uncomfortable, but it's brief and, you know, not expected to have long-term side effects. I think the other kind of piece to downsides of screening is that it can cause anxiety just anticipating your results, as well as there are, you know, a certain rate of false positives and false negatives. False positives being really the big issue because you'd have to come in for either extra scans or extra exams that wouldn't have otherwise been necessary. And you know what? It's not just you. You know, I'm a big proponent of of lung cancer screening in the right patients, you know, and, you know, people, you're going to find things you want and things you don't. And Correct. When they hear that word nodule, or it just doesn't sit well for a long time, and we do a lot of follow up imaging, and that time between imaging, it's on the back of their mind. It does yeah. a lot of anxiety, you know. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I mean, you, you said we said mammogram a couple times, and I always said, "We're well, this is for my patients and the listeners." What is a mammogram? Great question. So a mammogram is a radiology study where they take images of your breast and the imaging technology is x-ray technology. Generally, it's at least a couple views of each breast and takes like most of the time is spent just positioning a patient and the actual scan takes, you know, minutes. Here's a question I wanted to sneak in there. Someone asked me to ask you, what is 3D mammography? Is, is that a thing? Do I have to wear 3D glasses or something? What is 3D? <laughs> it's not like going to the IMAX theater. <laughs> um, but USC definitely has 3D mammography. It's also called tomography. And it is generally looked at as a slightly better tool in screening than 2D mammography, which is the kind of traditional classic mammogram. 3D just means that it's taking kind of a a series of photos and then they can kind of layer those onto each other. So a radiologist can scroll through a series of mammogram images and can pick up breast cancers with a little bit more accuracy than a 2D mammogram. Um, I think the other benefit to 3D mammography is that I believe there are less callbacks, so less kind of false positives with that. So let me ask you the obvious question. So is that going to be the new standard of care or do I need to get better insurance or how do you choose who gets the traditional monography, mammography, and who gets the 3D? My understanding is it's not an issue of whether insurance will cover it or not. It's okay. just whether your facility has the ah, okay. 3D mammography imaging or not. So um, we definitely have it at USC Keck. And many other breast imaging facilities will have it. And it's just as simple as calling them and asking if they have it or not. Cool. So let's, go, let's expand on the mammogram. So someone gets it, a patient, and it's abnormal. What happens then? Yeah. So it depends on how abnormal this mammogram is. Okay. Um, so there are findings that are abnormal, but not really suspicious for a cancer. You know, it's kind of a soft call, what they'll say. And generally, the radiologist will ask the patient to come back in, let's say, six months and do another image just to make sure that that slightly abnormal finding is not getting away from us and not changing. But the other kind of abnormal findings, the findings that are suspicious that could possibly be cancer, 
generally require additional imaging as well as a biopsy in, in okay. most cases. We're focusing on mammogram, but I kind of want to throw in three letters, MRI. So where is the role of an MRI and is it an alternative to who gets it? Can you give the listeners some guidance on this? I like to think about an MRI as a super sensitive imaging technique. And so it catches more suspicious lesions than a mammogram will. But on the flip side, then it calls more false positives than you would with the mammogram. So you want to select who is getting an MRI carefully, because if let's say if we did just MRI screening for the general population, it wouldn't be found to be kind of an effective screening tool because of the number of false positives you get. So for screening purposes, we generally recommend MRI screening for patients at the highest risk of breast cancer, patients with the BRCA one or two mutation, a very strong family history, or the other one that comes up sometimes is uh, if you've had, let's say, a type of lymphoma before called Hodgkin's when you were young and you've had uh-huh. radiation to this chest area. There are also other kind of special situations where an MRI might be used, but generally what it's used for more is when you know there's a breast cancer and you want to make sure you know the extent of breast cancer spread. So when it might be that there are multiple focus foci of cancer, or you're worried about cancer on the other side, on the other breast, then you might look at an MRI. So I'm going to put you on the spot. So someone gets an MRI, I'm sorry, gets a mammogram and it's abnormal. You mentioned, hey, let's just do short-term follow-up. Is there any role for an MRI after an abnormal mammogram or am I just mixing concepts? Generally with an abnormal mammogram, sometimes you'll get an ultrasound. I think in most cases, it's fine to just stick with mammography and ultrasound and repeat those. And I think it's kind of a radiologist call if they want to add on an MRI. Sometimes they'll do to clarify kind of what they're seeing though. I have seen that done. Okay. And I want to make sure my listeners get this straight. So when we talk about screening, we said 40 years, starting at 40 years of age for most people. And how often should they get the mammogram? And once again, say clearly, when should they stop? So average age person, starting at age 40, and then every year a patient should get a screening mammogram. The time to stop would be if the life expectancy, so if if due to other physical illness, um, if the life expectancy is less than 10 years, then you can think about stopping cancer screening. But, you know, no matter what the age, if a patient is in good health, we generally would continue cancer screening. People ask me about the role of breast exam. Yeah. I came from... In med school, you do breast exams, and that's what we were taught. And we used to teach patients to go home and how to do it. So can you explain the role of breast exams in two realms? One, the patient doing it, like in the shower, and two, the physician like you or me doing it in the exam room. What is the role, and what do uh, societies say about it, meaning the, the medical societies, the guidelines, you know? Yeah, so the U.S. Preventative Task Force Services kind of stopped the recommendation for self-breast exams. So this is a patient examining their own breast. I believe the recommendation for an in-clinic breast exam still stands. I think my philosophy, though, is that any female is at risk for breast cancer more later life, but we do have breast cancers that are diagnosed for patients in their 
30s and even in their 20s. And so how are you going to catch that if you're not doing screening? Well, you're going to catch that because you felt something. So I, I really encourage patients to be aware of their breasts. And, you know, it doesn't have to be every month in the shower feeling your breast, but I don't see a downside. There's really no harm in self-exam. There's no harm in asking your doctor, Hey, I feel this lump. What do you think it is? I'm a proponent of breast exams, both with your doctor or by yourself. And for your practice, I mean, are you seeing it after the diagnosis is made and this is breast cancer, we need your help, Dr. Kang, or are you also seeing the patients that hey, I did feel something. I think something's abnormal. And are you starting the workup? Are you doing any screening? Are you involved in that part of it? So my line of work as a medical oncologist, I'm generally seeing patients after they've already been diagnosed with breast cancer. Although sometimes I see patients who are at increased risk, but haven't been diagnosed with breast cancer. That being said, many of my patients will come in with that same question. Hey, I feel a lump. What do you think this is? Because They've had breast cancer and now they are ultra aware. Of course. Um, and so never mind those calls or those questions, but to, to get it worked out, you have to be seen. And so, you know, we try to get them in as soon as we can and uh, see them in the clinic, get imaging if necessary. You know, I know you're going to be sad because that was my last question, but I want to oh, no. know you're, you're such a good sport and you just make me feel like a better person than just talking to you. So can you just, uh, if people want to see you or come to Beyond Exceptional Care USC, can you give some information right now of how they can get plugged in if they're worried about breast cancer or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. If you look up USC breast cancer, our clinic should come up on the web and we should have a number. I can give you, do you want me to give you our new patient coordinator? Hey, whatever you want. And while you're looking it up, I'll do a little banter, which is we do have some show notes and I'll put Dr. Irene Kang's information and anything about her on our show notes. So you can look her up and get information and get treatment uh, here at our hospital, which is USC. Back to you, Irene. (laughs) The number to call for new patient appointments is 323-865-3371. You know what? I had to like... You cut down the question. So I'm going to throw it out there. If we have any more breast cancer questions, you know, things are always kicking up. I even get to talk about COVID and breast cancer. Can you come back on the show and maybe answer more questions for us? I would love to. And I'd also love to address special populations because I just talked about average female risk, but we have transgender and other populations. And so uh, I'd be happy to come back. Oh, you're the greatest. Well, hey, thank you everyone for listening to the Dr. Raj podcast. I know you learned a lot and I will see you again for the next episode. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.